Welcome back to another episode of the Dairy Meets Beef podcast. I'm your host, Jake Vermeer, and together with my co-host, Lance Nielsen, we'll be discussing numerous topics on the show. Some of the topics include transition milk, embryonic transfer, and some of the recent egg politics in the international news. Don't forget to stick around for our WTF segment at the end. Today's episode will give you some great insight into the hardships and pleasures of the calving season in the beef world. So sit back, turn on the auto steer, and enjoy the show. How are you today? Good. And yourself, Jake? Good. Are you uh, making it through all right through calving season? Yeah. Well, we've we've had quite a gap here between podcasts, actually. I think I've probably had 100 calves or so since the last podcast we had about 10 days ago or whatever it was. So it's been a good, good busy stretch. Had a had a big storm in there for one or two days. and But most mostly it's been good, good weather and, and making life easier. That's crazy. Um, uh, for some of the listeners who don't know what Lance just referred to I think on Monday we had close to 100 kilometer hour gusts come through Alberta I know I seen the Waterton Park down in southern Alberta they had 135 kilometer hour gusts so we had some nasty wind this week yeah it was it was pretty intense there for about 30 hours or so we had calves got buried in snow drifts and and they you know black cows were completely white calves had ice over their eyes and you know we were we spent a lot of hours just finding calves that were not in the right spot and bringing them into the barn and getting them warmed up and taking them back out and finding any calf we could it was a little morbid at sometimes we're you know probing deep snow drifts to see if there's calves under there fortunately i did not ever find one calf under a deep snow drift we didn't find a dead one under a snowdrift, so that that was good. But I was pretty worried there for a bit. We were going to so, yeah, but it's not a fun even though have to do even those little baby calves are they're smarter than you probably give them credit for that. But we we did lose we did lose a couple calves, but it was uh, that was a pretty nasty storm. Yeah, it's a battle against Mother Nature. I mean, what what are you going to do, right? Um, uh, 
I know that the week before it was like 16 degrees still on the one day and I had taken all my calf jackets off on my outside calves because we got some bull calves and some heifer calves outside and uh, I was worried about them sweating during the day with the jackets on so okay take them off and then that Sunday night I was looking at the forecast I was like holy crap like we're gonna get those jackets back on them and, and hopefully not have any problems outside so yeah that was that was a crazy storm yeah but yeah now once again it's plus seven so that yeah, was a that was a very short short window so it's yeah no kidding i just wanted to share with uh with some of our viewers um or listeners i guess um uh, our podcast now has three episodes so i was going to share some of our uh, our uh, stats from our um, uh, analytics side we have had uh, 115 downloads so far and we are actually international so we've had seven downloads out of denmark and five downloads out of the netherlands so uh, welcome to all our european listeners and hopefully uh, hopefully you're uh, gonna stay for the long run well you get all the denmark listeners that's where nielsen is from i have i have relatives in denmark and and that's uh my my great grandpa came from Denmark in 1905 and settled pretty close to where I farm right now. Hmm, interesting. So, what's uh, how do you say uh, welcome to the podcast in uh, Danish? I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> the generation above me kept some contact. Like I think my uncles and aunts and stuff have kept a little bit of contact with some Danish relatives, but I I don't have any. So, if anybody out there wants to reach out to me, you can find me at Nielsen Beef, and we can uh, maybe I can find some uh, Danish relatives through the podcast. Awesome. I have to sign up for ancestry.com and figure out where, where all your relatives are. That's kind of cool. Yeah. You bet. So our first topic, um, uh, it's kind of, uh, a plug to what, what both me and Lance do on both our farms. Um, uh, and, and Lance more in a, in a natural state, but on our farm, um, by design, um, uh, a lot of the beef calves that are being born now are drinking, uh, transition milk, we call it, um, uh, or Lance would call it just the mother's milk. But the first seven days of a cow's life um, or a calf's life, it needs more colostrum. So typically dairy farms have always fed uh, three liters of colostrum, normally about two or three feedings, and then switched over to whole milk. But as Lance can attest, the calves on the, on the mothers in pasture or in these cow-calf operations, they get the mother's milk for well, basically for for 90 days or so and uh, the first two weeks of, of life that milk in that mother's uh, uh, milk is way higher in fatty acids and in colostrum um, uh, so there's a lot of immunoglobins that are passing through the calf and uh, basically uh, creates for a way healthier calf so i know our farmers now started to feed transition milk by adding colostrum to the milk um, uh, together with Altogenetics, we started to uh, experiment with this and we've seen like a 60% reduction in scours. Um, uh, and that's been huge. Um, scours is kind of something that we all go through with dairy farms, um, uh, really to no severity. Um, uh, we have a very low mortality, but a high morbidity. And, uh, but now with the introduction of this transition milk, we've really been able to slow that down. So, um, I was wondering, Lance, if you see the same thing with your calves or, uh, or if it's just uh, a normal thing. Yeah, it's not something I can really even test. I mean, we, we rarely have a, a bottle baby and that's, uh, you know, in the beef world, you, if you lose a calf, you, you know, if you have another one, you, you put it on that cow so she isn't dry over the whole, the whole summer, but it's not exactly a, a concern of ours. I was, I was wondering with yours, 
you know, I, I know a couple of years ago, you built some different uh, calf housing areas and your transition milk, is that, a, you know, that's only been in the past several months that you've been doing that. So you, you had some time in those new calving housing areas without transition milk. And just, just from seeing your operation, I, I would think that calf housing also had a pretty big impact on reduction in scours and other, and other uh, disease issues. But uh, which would you say was bigger that the housing or the, the transition milk? I would say that uh, that both played a big role. So before, for our listeners who don't know, our farm used to put the newborn calves pretty quickly into group housing uh, on the robot feeders. And what we found after a while, especially when, once we grew and we had more calves in the same age frame, um, uh, that if one calf got sick, a lot of them got sick. And I'm talking with scours. And that's because of the group housing mentality. It's kind of to a certain degree like COVID right now when, when you have a person with COVID in a, in a group setting, there's a pretty high chance that the group setting is going to come down with it. And uh, so we kind of figured this out a few years ago. And we, we built a quarantine facility, basically a nursery, we call it. So two groups of 16, all with individual housing so the calves can't uh, interact with each other. And that basically allows us to keep them separated until that day uh, 14 comes around because calves don't have an immune system until day 10. That's why we feed them colostrum to make sure that we can build up their immune system uh, while their actual immune system is being built up. And uh, now we, we see way less calves getting sick and the transition milk has definitely helped the individual cases go down. Um, uh, but we don't see that group transfer as much anymore, um, if at all. So once once they're healthy, we call it 14 days are healthy. So if a calf is still scouring a little bit around day 12, 13, we'll keep her for a couple of days longer on the transition milk before moving her into the group housing. But uh, yeah, definitely our, our nurseries have made a really big difference on, on the quality of the calves going into the group housing situations. Yeah, I mean, we just, we just don't battle that same issue really. If you, the only thing I could compare that to is is if we have things too crowded, right? Mm -hmm. And and that you know that can cause problems. But but for the most part, you know those calves being on mother's milk for the they just don't get sick really, right? It's yeah. a year like this where we're actually got a pretty dry spring, except for Monday Tuesday. You know we're not having any sickness because it's nice and dry. They got lots of area to spread out in, and you get cold, rainy or snowy. And they got to more get, you know, congregate in the calf sheds and shelters. And yeah, that's when we start getting sickness too. So I guess that's the equivalent. Do you uh, vaccinate for rota coronavirus or anything with your mother cows or? Uh, yeah, we do. Yeah. And, and also we vaccinate the calves at birth as well. Right. With a so, scholar so that, guard or something. Uh, it's a nasal spray. Actually, we do two different nasal sprays, one for pneumonia and one for the, the, you know, a rotavirus and, okay. and we, we do that at birth when we tag them, give them some selenium and some vitamin AD and, uh, and tag them and send them on their way. And yeah, the, the mother does the rest with her, with her immune system passed on to them. Right. Yeah. That's interesting. Um, uh, and it's going to be very important for you coming up because I have been watching your social media and you're going to have some pretty expensive calves hitting the ground in the next year or so. So tell me a little bit, a little bit about your uh, embryo program that you're starting up here. Yeah, so it's our first year. We're doing some uh, custom uh, calving for embryos. So we're, we're providing the recip cow and the, the customer, the purebred breeder is providing the embryo. 
And we're getting, we're in the process now of getting our first batch of recips ready. The first implant date is next week. And we're doing, um, we're doing 50 on this first, this first wow. batch. And so, yeah, then we'll, you know, obviously we'll pasture this pregnant recip this summer, feed her next winter, calve her out in January. And then we will raise that calf through the summer and the, the pre-bred breeder, the, the embryo owner, they will buy that calf off of us at a, at a market rate that we've determined, a, a premium market rate. And we will uh, start the process over again in the spring after, after she calves. Hopefully she stays in a reset program and we'll keep, keep doing this uh, year after year with her. So yeah, we're looking forward to it. It's, it's pretty exciting. It allows us to, to utilize our cow herd a little bit better and actually take a page from you. I know one thing that's always interests me in the dairy world is you take your bottom end cows and you put high end embryos in them and you constantly ratchet up the productive value of your herd. And uh, you know, that's the same thing. If we, we get more intense and more, more options available for, for beef, easier embryo work for beef cattle, we can do the same thing and, and uh, ratchet up the, the uh, genetic improvements in our herd quicker. Yeah, so your industry is still kind of the same as ours a little bit, where the purebred guys see the value in creating the high-end calves. But I'm wondering, and it's the same in the dairy industry, where the commercial guys are still a little bit slower to adapt this type of genetic progress, I guess you would call it. Um, do you think there's an appetite for commercial herds in, in the cow-calf industry to start, imp I mean, even AI has been slow to, uh, to, to be taken advantage of by the cow-calf industry, but do you think that implanting high-end commercial embryos for a decent price will, will take off one day in the cow-calf industry or? I do. I think, I don't know if it'll take off, but I don't know how many years it'll take that, but I do think we are seeing, seeing a lot more acceptance to it. I think Canada's behind the U.S. in that front. You know, we, we started, we started our, our cattle development side of our farm here this winter and that's, as far as I can tell, there isn't too many of us in Canada that do this. And uh, it's a lot more common in the U.S. There's a lot, there's a lot bigger beef cattle operations that solely focus on embryo work and providing recips. And, and you, buy, you know, people can buy pregnant recips with the different crossed embryos in them. It's a, it's a lot bigger market. And so we're, we're bringing that to Canada. And hopefully, yeah, you know, we're, we're at the forefront of it, I think, for, for bringing it more mainstream. And uh, hopefully it's not just a purebred um, function anymore. And we can, we can start doing a lot of improvements for the commercial herd too. Yeah, that's really exciting. And I, and I guess for the listeners that are listening, what, what we're talking about here is we are um, uh, basically creating uh, numerous embryos out of our top end animals. So we identify these through traits that, that either one of us in our, in our different industries uh, value. So for me, it would be milk production and for Lance, it would be all sorts of things from low calving ease to high carcass weights to high weaning weights to all those things. Um, uh, well, what we do is we basically create more and more embryos out of our top end animals. We extract those from the donor cow, we call it, and then we implant them at day seven of life into a recip cow or a surrogate, I guess what in the human world would be the equivalent uh, terminology. Um, and that does two things really. It a creates more high-end pregnancies um, from your best cows, but it also eliminates uh, poor pregnancies or poor quality calves from your bottom-end animals. So it's really a, a two birds, one stone situation. And that's one thing our farmers really been able to take advantage of is 
we have only a certain amount of free stalls in the barn. We only have so much uh, capacity or infrastructure to milk a certain cow. So we have to get efficient. And so what I always thought is about how can we get the most amount of liters per stall? And one of those things is to have a very high efficient cow uh, taking that stall. So also greatly reduce our carbon footprint by having cows that, that are way more effective by consuming less feed and producing more milk. Um, so we look for those type of genetic traits and uh, by by flushing our top one or two percent of our animals and implanting them into the bottom 50, we greatly increase our chances of genetic progress. I think there's in the, in the beef world, there's different areas that get more that adopt this earlier. You get into really expensive land values. You know, in Alberta here, that would be this what we call the Highway 2 corridor, really good farmland right through the heart of the major population base, land is, is at a premium compared to areas that are further away from, from this, from the hub of the population base. You, you get out further into the, you know, areas where you're getting a few hours away from major cities, land values are lower, people end up, they don't quite have the same focus of getting the, extracting every dollar they can out of an acre of land or getting the most pounds of beef off an acre or, you know, whatever it is that you're producing. And I think the people that drive this right now the most are these are the people that are in the, the expensive per acre land value areas because they have no choice. How do they, same as you, you only have so many stalls in your barn. Well, it's pretty hard to buy more land at, at these prices and that's, that's not getting any cheaper anytime soon. So I think that's where you're going to start seeing it being really driven by and then slowly spread out. And I, and I think that's, I think ultimately that's to the benefit of the consumer as well. Um, the more efficient and effective we get, um, the better the product, um, uh, and, and not just the cheaper the product, but the, the less cost that has gone into making that product. Um, uh, and then in the environmental stewardship, I think that the more efficient we become at producing more off of each acre, um, that has a huge benefit to uh, the greater climate, um, uh, which is one of the major uh, topics on uh, on consumers' minds nowadays. I know that that's what our dairy industry faces, and we're working really hard towards trying to be environmental stewards of the land, um, something that farmers have always been, um, uh, but even taking it to the next level and, and really showing the consumers that we're trying to do our best here. I don't think we give ourselves credit on those fronts because, I mean, it doesn't matter who you know, what, what product you're producing, whether it's beef, milk, or grain, if you're not efficient, you're not going to make it. Inefficiencies mm -hmm. come with, that's, that goes hand in hand with good stewardship of the land because you can't, uh, you can't have, have waste. And, uh, you know, if you're wasting anything, you're wasting money and, and they, they go, do go hand in hand. So I don't think we give ourselves credit enough as, as farmers, because I do think that that that's just naturally occurring all the time. We're just not phrasing it right. We're not given the right terminology to it that's speaking to the, the urban consumer or to the politicians. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Um, uh, so a little bit back to the embryos and stuff. So what could a producer expect when, when they start to do, uh, let's say their own on-farm embryos? What, what does a flush cost and, and what does it cost to kind of implant uh, recips and stuff? And what kind of conception rates are you looking at getting? So implanting a recip is, isn't too expensive. You know, it costs uh, around $140. That includes the, 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 you know, the drugs to prepare the recip um, properly. And, and the cost of the embryo can vary wildly, right? You can buy embryos for a couple hundred bucks. You can buy embryos for several thousand dollars. 
to flush your own cow and get your own embryos, which again is the success of that is, is wildly, you know, all over the map. You can have six embryos, you can have zero embryos, you could have 20 embryos out of a cow, but the, the actual flush costs around $800. And, you know, if you get 10 embryos out of it, well, your cost per, per embryo gets a lot lower. But if you get two, well, it gets to be pretty expensive flushing. Yeah. But, you know, once you have that done and you, you get your recips ready, your surrogates ready, um, you know, you shoot for, it's, it's only about 50 to 60% conception rate. 60% would be pretty good. Mm-hmm. Under 50%, you'd be pretty disappointed with. Yeah, especially on fresh. I think fresh, you can, you can expect 50 and higher um, uh, on frozen. And the beef and the dairy industry are totally two different things when it comes to conception rates, two, two totally different animals. One is a super athlete and, and one is a beef cow. So there's a big difference there. Um, easy, uh, <laughs> easy. They're super athletes too. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, there's, there's a big difference there. Um, uh, I know how our farm looked at embryos is, is obviously the cost of them. Not, not much different than what Lance was talking about. But uh, for those of you listening, you know what LPI uh, points are. It's lifetime profit index on dairy farms. It's basically the uh, overcompassing index that's used for uh, basically identifying how good animals are. And it's based off of their parental average, but also their direct genomic value. Um, uh, so basically every 100 LPI points an animal increases, there's $150 to gain over a lifetime. Um, so what we looked at our farm is we looked at average LPIs across our age groups. And we saw that it, was, it wasn't quite high enough. And we said, well, how can we do this? Well, you can keep breeding the next generation and, and gaining a couple LPI points or a couple hundred in, in, in different uh, generation jumps, but it takes too long. And so when I came back from college, I said, well, what's the fastest way we can get genetic increase? Well, by implanting embryos, because you basically just skip the, the, the waiting period and just jump to the, to the final product. So we started implanting 33, 3,400 LPI point uh, embryos into 2,500 point embryos. So that 700 LPI point gain ended up costing, costing us over a thousand bucks in, in genetic progress or not costing us, but gaining us over a thousand bucks in genetic progress per, per live embryo calf that was born. Um, so we said that was a no brainer. So we started investing pretty heavily in buying embryos and doing ET work. Um, uh, and right now we have close to 160, 170 embryo calves on, on the ground and uh, lots milking. And, and we can really see the payback already on these animals, way higher productions, uh, longer productive lives. Um, uh, so even though we're a commercial dairy farm, we're not a, no, we're not a show farm. We don't sell genetics for the most part. Um, we're in it just to make our bottom line better. And it's really started to pay off. It's really exciting. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. You're sharing some of your, your graphs and charts with me showing, showing, you know, the trend lines of, of what, you know, a, your embryo program has done for you. And, you know, I'm envious of that. We don't have that in the beef world to be able to, to be able to track that so accurately. We're, we're a bit away from that. That's, that's a, that's a goal of mine is to start, start doing that. It's the, the, and maybe I'm, maybe I'm giving beef a free pass, but the, the variables that go into, you know, taking a, a beef animal. So, so at the end of the day, we're producing pounds of beef, right? You're producing liters of milk, we're producing pounds of beef, mm-hmm. but there's so many variables that go into, will that ultimately be, you know, a, uh, a genetic improvement 
in a feedlot scenario where you're, you're getting pounds of beef, it's, I think it's a lot harder to track that. In the dairy world, you can track it so accurately. They're getting milked every day. Here's exactly how many liters they did. In the beef world, man, it seems like the, the, you know, the calf crop gets spread out to so many different feedlots and so many different operators. It's, it's very tough to accurately get the data that you can get in the, in the dairy world. You need a national buy-in. And I think it's really no different in the dairy world. While I could be submitting my milk numbers, my neighbor could be doing the same thing, but whose management is, let's say, even 50% of that of mine or 50% better. I mean, I'm not outing anyone, but if, if you're 50% better or worse than me, your genetic uh, potential is not going to be achieved or your genetic potential is much higher than, than mine, right? Um, so I think you need national buy-in. If, if you had all of those feedlots uh, submitting their final numbers, and this is kind of where you need an association that is one across all breeds, um, then you could finally start submitting numbers from the feedlots that says, okay, the week before they left, and then the management really wouldn't matter that much as long as you have a big enough pool to outweigh the variables. Well, they do. They do, right? I mean, there's, there's weekly um, carcass data that, that gets compiled. Um, you know that, and that's from the packers that so they they provide carcass data. You know what what the yield percentage was, carcass weights, all those sort of things are tracked, and it does give you an overarching trend line. Um, so I mean, maybe, maybe that's why I said that's why I started this out saying maybe I'm giving beef a little bit of a free pass here because maybe we do have the data. So it's just it's a very there's so many more beef farmers than there are dairy farmers. I think right to get yeah, to true. get that buy in. You know, you, you, you have uh, beef farmers are such independent people. And, uh, and it, I think it'd be pretty, it's a lot harder to get enough buy-in amongst that many people to, to change the trend line as fast as dairy can. I think I might be wrong on that. So if you ship steer calf number 4,024 and she is, or he is uh, sold to a processing plant or, or, or uh, butchered in six months from now, can you go six months from now and go look up the the carcass weight of animal 4024? Um, I can for the ones that we butcher through our box beef program. Right, but the feedlots. But like on a national scale, no, they can't right. do that. If there was a a um, you know a, a disease concern or something, they ultimately could trace it back to the farm of origin but they don't keep carcass data per, per animal. They just, you know, every animal does have an RFID tag. I mean, that, that would be available, but to my knowledge, I couldn't go and say, look, this calf was born on my farm of, you know, March of 2021. And, uh, you know, 16 months from now, there's no database where I can go search up that RFID tag number and say, Oh, look what its carcass did after it went through my hands and then a feedlot's hand and then a packer. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and, that, and that's kind of where the national buy-in comes in. There needs to be a, a system in place where that data is submitted to um, uh, and then goes back towards the farms. Because how do you know if if that like if those genetics from that steer calf outperform the others in its group, right? Um, you, you don't you don't if you're a wean if you wean your calves off the cow and sell off the cow, which is what the majority of people do. Yeah. You know, you can get a, a, an idea. You, you, you as the individual farmer can certainly say, look, uh, you know, my, my steers were 50 pounds heavier this year when I marketed them as weaned calves off the farm. Or, or you have a general idea throughout the summer saying, man, my calf crop looks really good or my calf crop does not look very good this year. 
you know, you can, you, you, you got some weights, but usually that ends at about, you know, eight months old as yeah. people market their steers and, and uh, heifers to, to feedlots, you know, given that we have our own branded beef program and we do finish not all of our own animals, but we do finish some of our own animals that that helps give us an idea and we can see real carcass data. But, but uh, for the most part, after eight months old, people don't know. Yeah. And that's only 40% of the steer's life, right? So yeah. you're, you're, you're taking your final report card when the steer is only completed 40% of it. Yeah, that's right. And, and they do stop. I mean, calves that look real awesome, at eight months old, most times stay looking pretty right. good. Right. But sometimes they don't. And, and you, you just don't, you don't know. You, yeah. and there's no way to know under yeah. this scenario. Interesting. Well, so there's definitely room for improvement there um, uh, for, for some sort of a program if it's wanted. But I think that ultimately, if you want to get to the next level of, of like what I was showing you in my PowerPoint, I think you somehow you have to be able to get that data back. from. Well, like, from you would think the tools, are, the tools are there though, right? With RFID tags, why can't we do that? Yeah. I, I don't know why, why it's not done because... You know, if, if I were to haul a, a liner load of my own finished animals to Cargill or JBS, I would get, I could get data back on my liner load of fats. They would, they would tell me. I wonder An why. Per animal. I think they tell you on per animal. Okay. But I don't know that for sure. But, it, but that never, it never, just never comes back because I guess. Once, you know, if, if I take them, I get that data back. And if the feedlot, you know, a finishing lot, that's a 20,000, 50,000 head lot, I'm sure they get that data back and they can, and they make management decisions accordingly. But, you know, by the time my steer that was born on my farm ends up at a packing plant, it might've went through two hands or three hands, right? Mm-hmm. And it just never, there's no database to go back and search your RFID tag and that I know of, maybe it's one of our listeners will correct me on this, but there's no, there's no database that I know of where you can go and find that. Yeah. So I see like this RDAR, uh, I forget what the acronym stands for, but it's the government's newest third party uh, granting uh, uh, body, I guess, but they, uh, th 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 this would be a huge thing for them to look at is to see if we can finally get some accountability on the, back end of the the steer's life and give it back to the cow calf guy who raised the who raised that steer calf uh, at the, in the first place right yeah i wonder who would be the roadblock there at the end yeah. of the day it's really just it's just the, the you know cargill and jbs would be the ones that would have to provide that service but yeah i uh, that would be very nice be very interesting for sure and yeah. you could use that as a marketing option too, right? You could, as the, as the individual producer, I could gather that info, no different than you did for your milking. I could gather that info and market my calves in the fall saying, look, yeah. look at what they did. Yeah. Look, look what they will do in your feedlot. Look at what my yeah. genetics do in your feedlot. Yeah. That'd be cool. <laughs> pioneering. Or, we're, we're pioneering. Or you want to, or you want to avoid it and say, Ooh, I, <laughs> I don't know what my calves did. But, but yeah. that would be good because then you bring up the accountability or the uh, and the effectiveness because that will force some cow calf guys to rethink what they're doing. Yep. Yeah, right. Mm, interesting. Yeah. I know that you yeah. have told me in the past, like because you you guys uh, last year ran ran your operation as a feedlot, and you did say it was a huge thing to know which farmers you were buying your calves from, um, uh, because it, it made a big difference on the bottom line. 
And I think it makes a big difference, even in the areas that they come from. You buy calves from, from those big country areas in Eastern and Southern Alberta, where those calves don't necessarily see anybody throughout their whole life, right? They, it's a different kind of calf. They, they don't, wild. They don't, they, yeah, they're pretty wild. They maybe don't put on as much weight and yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm not a, I'm not a, uh, you know, a, a cattle feeder uh, expert by any means, but uh, yeah, you can sort of tell different areas that animals come from in my experience. Yeah, that's true. Um, uh, it's kind of a nice segue into our next topic here. Um, uh, I don't know how many of our listeners know or have seen the, what's it called? The pause uh, ballot that happened in Colorado state. It was Colorado state ballot initiative and it was called pause protect animals from unnecessary suffering and exploitation. And the ballot basically suggests that animals need to live at least 25% of their natural lifespans. So for cows, I think that was 25 years. So cows had to live five years. Um, pigs, I think it was 20 years. So they had to live at least a minimum of four. Um, and then chickens, same thing. I think it was 10. So they had to live a minimum of, of two or so. Um, uh, so what uh, what are your thoughts about that? Well, I would think that's just, a, you know, calling cows natural life 25 years. You know, it's, they did the same to all, all chickens and and pigs as well but but that's they, they purposely put them high just to ensure economic you know it, it, there's no way it would be economic for anybody to raise any animals anymore and uh because you have to wait till five i think it wasn't just it wasn't just for for slaughter time either it was also for reproduction they had mm-hmm. to reach five years old i think before you could even even they could have a calf which is obviously not natural for any animal to wait that long right yeah but, but they were just basically there there it was a hail mary which went a lot farther than it should have just to try to destroy the the animal raising industries yeah, and, I, and it's been two weeks since the story's come out so a lot of our listeners have probably heard about it at least the ones in our industries um uh, i'm not sure if the ballot actually ever went through or not um uh, but yeah it's a it would be a devastating one for the agriculture there's no way around it um it just wouldn't be possible it's amazing because colorado was a is a heavy agriculture state yeah, there's a lot of cattle well there's a lot of all types of animals there's a lot of cattle in, in colorado it's uh anytime i've been there a couple times and it it reminds me a lot of alberta the landscape it's it's conducive to to cattle ranching it's it's amazing to me that something like that would has went as far as it has. I think it just shows how important, and I mean a small, very, very small scale, how important a podcast like this is, but how important it is for agriculture to continue to strive out to uh, to meet consumers and educate them on what we are doing, um, because it's ballots like these that are our direct enemy. They're our direct uh, uh, problem. And uh, I think if we let that continue, um, without reaching out to the consumers, it's just a it's just a battle to turn minds. And uh, the slower we are at fighting back, uh, the more ground they'll win. Farmers need to take on social media. Mm-hmm. They need to be serious about it. You and I are, and I wish more would be. And this goes back to what we said at the beginning about you know even environmental stewardship. We are doing these things we're just not giving ourselves credit with the right terminology. We're, we're, we're behind the eight ball constantly because we're not, we're not um, using the trendy phrase to describe it. And we're not getting our story out there. 
we're, we're doing the right things on our farms because, because that's what makes sense to us. And we're, we just got to get the, we just got to get the, you know, the message out and farmers need to take some social media seriously. And, and they're good stories. Just share what you're doing. And it's, it's, it, it does wonders. We actually just, I think I told you this a week or two ago when, and we just actually delivered our second order to a couple that, that were vegetarians. And because of our social media, they started eating meat again and started buying beef from us because they said, well, you take care of your animals. It looks like you love your animals on your social media. You take really good care. And I appreciate that. We do, we do take good care, but you know what? Most other do too. Right. And we're not alone. We're not alone in that. And there are obviously a few bad apples in every industry that you're ever in, but I dislike them more than any vegetarian (laughs) even would. If I see somebody that's abusing or not taking care of their neglecting their cattle herd, I mean, that, that makes me more angry than, than make a vegetarian. Right. So that, that those stories that we do every day, you know, just you know the the blizzard i i posted quite a few quite a few uh pictures and a couple videos of you know the monday tuesday blizzard and i wasn't the only guy doing that everybody my neighbors within a mile of me and and they were all doing we we were all doing the same thing at the same time we were working 20 hours that day to keep things alive but i don't know if the urban person knows that level of dedication that we all give. So I try to give that perspective and I wish more farmers would do that. Yeah, no, you're hundred percent right. And, and for anyone, especially our farmers listening and thinking like, well, you guys are doing a great job. I don't need to get involved or, and, or it, it will never get that bad. Urban people, they, they do care about us in the Netherlands. So my parents' home country where my grandparents still live or my aunt and uncle still live, my cousins all live there. The official opposition party in their last election here a couple of weeks ago, um, so this is the party with the second most votes, actually has a mandate to remove over 50% of the farmers. Um, uh, they, they are looking to get rid of 50% of farmers in the Netherlands. And it basically stems from the fact that they uh, have set a quota for their carbon footprint or their carbon emissions. And by decreasing the amount of farms, which farms have a very small effect on the carbon footprint, especially in a very urbanized country like the Netherlands, they're basically wanting to decrease the amount of farms and increase the amount of city space. They're just running out of spaces to put cities or expand their cities. So they're trying to expand into the rural parts of the Netherlands. And by kicking out the farmers, they're gaining more urban areas. But it's it's just amazing to see. And I think it's something that we need to be cognizant of because it's it is a reality that's out there. So where does, why do they want to create food shortages? This is something I I don't understand. Why, you know, they just think, well, someone else is going to pick up the, the, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the slack, the, the, you know, North America's big wide open spaces, different countries in Europe, big wide open spaces, they'll produce the food for us. Is that what they're thinking? Or do they even think that far ahead? They don't even consider that, but, but all these things, whether it's even, even things like, you know, opposition to glyphosates and, and different things. Europe, Europe is a, a lot more, um, you know, restrictive in those ways. It, they're just, they're attempt, attempting to create food shortages. That's amazing. They're only, 
80 years, once 80, 80 years removed from World War II, where there was massive food shortages. And it's the reason why agriculture boomed in Europe, because there was so much food shortage. Like I know my my opa was uh, in the basement of his dairy barn when the Nazis came through and cut the cows loose. And uh, so they had no cows when they were finally, uh, when the war was finally done. So there was massive food shortages during that time. So agriculture boomed and agriculture technologies boomed to try and increase the effectiveness of, of uh, crop output per acre or per cow or per pig or all these things. And now it's just like, it's just too, they're just too comfortable, right? They're just too comfortable and now are taking liberties um, um, because they, they, they live in comfort and uh, it wouldn't take much. And it's kind of interesting that this is happening just after pandemic here, where a lot of countries like ours faced all of a sudden toilet paper shortages, all of a sudden, uh, like the, what was the last week I saw campfire wood was, was at a, a low, um, uh, all these things like just see shortages across the board. And now you have a country deciding that, oh, we don't need, we don't need to produce as much food as we currently are. What is imported? Very naive. And it only takes a percentage or two of reduction of, of a product or a commodity to create incredibly high increase in price, right? Like a, yeah. a couple percentage um, of demand increase or supply decrease, that, that's huge to a market. And, yeah. I, you know, I mean, right now we're seeing grains and oil seeds booming right now. Um, and I, th I think these are why. I mean, it's, it's, I don't think that's a temporary thing. I think we're going to see commodities boom, you know, agriculture commodities continue to rise simply because there's so much opposition in places like Holland and, and that sort of thing. And you reduce the food output and people are going to compete harder for, for what's available. Now, another thing that's really amazing with this, this story coming out of the Netherlands with this opposition party is we always talk about mainstream media being biased and there are obviously cases where it's easily proven but for the most part we live within our own bubbles and and we believe it's biased but it's sometimes hard to tell um it's seeing living in this bubble here in canada and seeing still having a kind of a view inside the bubble in the netherlands um i have seen mainstream media outlets there uh complaining and and blaming agriculture for covid breeding grounds now, that is something that has not popped up at all in Canada, in our mainstream media, but all of a sudden in the Netherlands, it's being blamed, farming is being blamed as a COVID hotspot for a perfect breeding ground for COVID. So you can kind of just see the narrative of mainstream media in the Netherlands pointing everything towards the farmers, villainizing the farmers, and effectively turning the urban perspective against the farmers, villainizing the farmers. So how long did that take to do that? Because, you know, in farming you know there's there's some sacred things in in canada and and farmers are actually one of them you don't you don't ever speak poorly really about a farmer in canada we're noble it's a noble occupation really yeah. it might they might make fun of dumb farmers although i don't think that happens as much anymore it used to be oh well you're you're uh, you know you're not smart enough to do anything else so be a farmer i think that narrative's even went away right farming's mm -hmm. a high-tech business and farming is a fairly noble occupation in in North America, but how long? I don't. I don't. As we've seen with COVID restrictions, things that we thought would have been crazy a year ago are now accepted. I think that narrative can be turned very, very quickly, and I'm just wondering how long it took in in Holland for that to happen. Yeah, I have no idea. I mean, I was born here, but uh, it it. I don't know. Yeah, I think I think already. Like, while my parents left, my parents. Uh, were annexed by a nature reserve 
And that nature reserve, it was a, a waterway that was outside of the town where my dad lived and they wanted to divert it um, through their land. So they annexed my parents, my, well, my grandparents' farm. They didn't buy it. So the difference between being annexed by the city and annexed by a nature reserve is money. So there's no money in being annexed by a nature reserve and there's a ton of money in being annexed by a city. So my grandparents' farm was annexed by a nature reserve, basically putting a cap on their uh, uh, expansion. So they'd never be able to get an expansion permit because ultimately it was the goal to divert that waterway through their land eventually. Um, and it just finally happened, like I think last year that they diverted the water through one of my grandpa's pastures. So 25, 30 years later, they finally did it in my parents. And I mean, it was to our benefit as a family. We've been able to prog pro progress a lot faster and better here in Canada. We've loved our loved uh, being here. Um, uh, but uh, it kind of shows you already, like even 30 years ago, that the Dutch government was already kind of plotting against farms and, and trying to, I don't know what, what you would call it, but they have this false reality of what the Netherlands has to be. Like they actually reintroduced the wolf into urban Holland and, and Germany. And, and I seen a video the other day of a Dutch uh, website um, uh, showing this like chained up dog that was outside one of the Dutch homes and this pack of wolves descended on this dog. And it's like, why do the urban people want this? They want to bring back nature to a place that is so urbanized. There's no place for that type of nature anymore. Like it's just lunacy, crazy. It is lunacy. And, and you see that in less extreme examples here, but you know, we do deal with nature here all the time, right? I mean, we're, we're in the middle of it. And then there's this romantic notion, I think, from urban dwellers. I don't want to talk disparaging about urban dwellers because we, I need urban dwellers, yeah. <laughs> urban dwellers to buy our, buy our products. I mean, I, they're, they're very, very important to us and I respect them immensely, but you know, we, we do live in nature and, and I think they have a romantic notion about what that is sometimes. And man, nature is harsh. Yeah. Like, <laughs> it is a cruel, cruel world out there in nature. And I think there's too much, too much uh, fantasy about what nature the harm, harmony of nature is is maybe not realistic yeah exactly so let's let's wrap up with our uh, what the what the farm segment so lance what was your so i guess it was two weeks so in the last two weeks what was your what the farm uh, moment well i'm gonna give two then and i actually didn't even think of this ahead of time but they popped in my head like immediately as soon as you said what the farm <laughs> so you know that we talked about it briefly off the bat the uh that storm on monday incredibly short-lived really you know it was really 24 30 hours so that you know it was that was good but that was intense that was hard wind that was that was that was bad conditions lots of snow and, and bad conditions so that wasn't good you know lost lost a couple calves and, and that, that was a tough one that was I was pretty exhausted the you know the Sunday Monday Tuesday by Tuesday night I was pretty exhausted the good things is, is, you know, we're deep into this embryo, uh, you know, it's pretty exciting. This, the embryo work we started, we've got the first batch of recips. We've been, you know, getting them ready and we have uh, the first implant date next week. And so that's, we're actually in the middle of that storm was the day we had to pull the cedars on Monday, pull one group of cedars on Monday and one group of cedars on Tuesday. So we're sitting there trying to rescue calves, but then, oh man, we have to pause and we got to get these cedars out on Monday morning as well in this crazy storm. So that was that wasn't too fun, but but that's exciting for us. That that this embryo work is is very exciting, and I'm very much looking forward to it. Yeah, How about yeah. for you, Jake? What what do you have going on? 
Um, uh, was my what the farm in the last two weeks. So uh, I guess to fit the narrative of, of the week, I guess with the embryo work, um, uh, I had contracted one of my uh, friend's uh, top donor cows in Ontario. Um, uh, so he uh, was going to flush four of his, of his cows. And he actually had one cow produce 51 total viable eggs. Um, uh, so of those 51, uh, 35 of them became number one embryo uh, embryos, so quality number one. Um, uh, and that's crazy. That's That's got to be at least six times as high as the average. Um, uh, so that was really exciting. So I purchased all of those from my friend and we should start implanting those in the next couple weeks. Um, uh, so uh, it'd be pretty, pretty exciting that one donor cow could ultimately have around 20, 25 heifer calves running around on my farm. It's pretty exciting. That is amazing. And will you try to flush those heifer calves and see if that trait of high amount of, of egg production carries forward? Yeah, it's definitely something that we look at. So he did tell me that her mother, the one that he flushed, also produced a lot of embryos around the 20 mark. So it definitely seems to be a, a heritable trait. Um, uh, cause on the same day of, of those four, the other one didn't produce any embryos and the other two were a little bit above average. So it wasn't anything to do with his management or anything. It was just a little bit of genetic luck. Um, uh, so that was really exciting. So we'll see once those calves are born, we'll genomic test all of them to see where their uh, indexes fall. And then, uh, we normally flush some of the higher index ones. Yeah. Awesome. Exciting. Yeah. Well, thanks everyone for joining us this week. Um, uh, and we look forward to bringing episode five, possibly with some guest speakers. So uh, stay tuned for that. Yeah, I think it's time to bring on some guests. I'm pretty excited about that. And you can check us out on our so various social media platforms. Uh, most everything I have is at Nielsen Beef, um, whether it's Instagram or Facebook and Nielsen Cattle on Twitter. Yeah, and I'm uh, at Jake Vermeer on Twitter and uh, Vermeer's Dairy on uh, Facebook and Instagram. So uh, check us out there and uh, give us a follow. Thanks very much. Yeah. Have a good evening.